Welcome to Divisive Issues. I'm Joe. I'm Sly. And I'm Ryan. And uh, we'd like to welcome you to our, our inaugural episode. And today we're going to be discussing Civil War, the uh, somewhat critically acclaimed Marvel event. And for those of you who don't know, Civil War is about a literal superhero civil war uh, where there's a tragic accident in beautiful Stanford, Connecticut that divides the superhero community in two with Iron Man leading the pro-registration side, which thinks that superheroes should come under federal regulation and have the same consequences that uh, police officers and other civil servants do. And Captain America is anti-registration, where he fears big government control and government dictating what superheroes do. I read this when it came out. Weirdly enough, I, this is better than I remember it being, because I expected it to be worse than I remembered it. But the art still holds up. It's uh, Steve McNevich. McNiven. We'll just fix that in editing. He's listening, I'm sure. Steve McNiven, whose art is drop-dead gorgeous. And Mark Millar's writing, actually less biased than I remember it being, which yeah. was really fascinating. I to me. feel the exact same way. I read it in college, actually, so mm-hmm. maybe in like 2010-ish. It was one of the books I was the most hyped to read, because I hadn't really read much Marvel, and I found the premise fascinating. And I remember really disliking it, and feeling that it was really biased, and really, like, on the nose. And I, rereading it now, I don't know if maybe I'm more open about it or because of the current political climate I'm a little more pro-registration than I was back then I feel like it holds up a lot better than I thought it would I actually hated the story when it first came out more because of how it changed the Marvel Universe now that a lot of the changes are less relevant I'm able to look at more as a story itself and as a story itself I agree with you guys it holds up better than I expected it to which is surprising because event books all of them are very flavor of the month. The appeal is really the new hot, big explosive issue coming out, while this actually surprisingly stands the test of time. For those who don't know, like around this time period, Marvel had really a string of events. I guess it all starts with Disassembled, and then we have House of M, then Civil War, then Secret Invasion, then Siege. And definitely this this one remains probably the most relevant out of all those. I feel like Civil War is also the quintessential event that it's very big flashy opening and more so than the majority of marvel events i'd say this actually had really lasting ramifications because a lot of times we see the this changes everything banner and it doesn't and civil war actually had some pretty big changes to marvel for a while only for the movies when captain america and iron man started getting their own movies in 2008 and onward did they start making things revert to status quo in the movies nullifying some of the changes in civil war but those changes echoed in the characters for a long time. So before we get into the real detailed plots, because we're going to talk lots lots of spoilers here, why don't we just say who we would recommend this book to, if anybody, and then we'll really start tearing it apart or building it back up. Well, if you're a person interested in uh, Captain America Civil War coming out and you want to get into comics, this isn't going to be exactly like the movie, but it's probably going to be similar themes, and, and it's the same concept of Iron Man versus Captain America on the political issue, and it is very hard to decide which one is actually in the right. I would recommend it to new readers. I think it's very accessible. One thing, new readers should take it with a grain of salt, that these were big changes for them, and a lot of them stuck around for a while, but I wouldn't say this is the definitive take on most of them. This was to shake things up and change things around a lot. But I think it reads very self-contained, very well, and I think it shows how big comic events in a shared universe really can be handled. Um, I'm definitely with you guys. I definitely think it's new reader friendly. I don't think the changes are as long-lasting as you guys think. I think most of the big change in this were wiped away after Siege, which was less than 10 years down the line. For comics, that's a long time, because comics are very status quo-driven. I also would say that I don't necessarily mean like big character changes, like big identity reveals and things like that, but it definitely informs... I know, I'm not saying anything. (laughs) It definitely informed a lot of character choices going forward, where I think Captain America became a more politically driven character that he hadn't been in in a while. It establishes Iron Man as being more involved with S.H.I.E.L.D., which any fans of the movies know that that's a pretty important thing. And also, it had a lot of long-term ramifications for Thor, which a lot of people don't realize, and the Fantastic Four was greatly affected. Things that still inform the characters to this day. This and Avengers Disassembled are the start of the modern Marvel Universe. I agree. And uh, if you like the movies, um, 
the characters are there. It has Iron Man, it has Captain America, Spider-Man, which we'll be seeing soon, Daredevil, although it's not quite the Daredevil that you know. Spoilers, Joe. Oh, it's fine. They don't even tell you that in the main series. Yeah. It's Iron Fist. (laughs) (laughs) Spoilers for Netflix, Joe. (laughs) Yeah, for the the Daredevil Civil War tie-in episodes. Let's dive into the book, not literally page by page, but let's go through it. No, we should literally page by page. Panel number one. This is now our audiobook podcast. (laughs) Alright guys, spoilers are coming. Alright, so let's start the opening scene. Things go horribly awry for the uh, New Warriors reality TV show. A little bit of backstory on the New Warriors. They are like a teen superhero team that showed up in the 90s. The closest thing you can compare them to is basically Marvel's Teen Titans. Yeah, so they were more of like a fun, goofier teen book. Except for Night Thrasher. I realized how angry Night Thrasher was. Uh, Night Thrasher, fun fact, uh, he rides around on a skateboard. Yeah. So anyway, things go really poorly for them when they seemingly get in over their... The book says they get in over their head, but they have things pretty well handled until Nitro, an old Captain Marvel villain, blows up a school, killing the residents of Stanford, Connecticut, around that area, and the New Warriors. And this scene is pretty brutal. It, it reminds me a lot of the Terminator movies when you see, like, the park. You see, like, kids playing on the playground just get disintegrated. You could tell right away that this is going to be this kind of book that does not pull punches. It's not gory, but it's definitely brutal. Yeah. So Fallout is, people are talking about superhero reform. Susan Everywoman spits in Tony Stark's face at her son's funeral. Her name isn't literally Susan Everywoman. It might as well be. Her son was one of the victims of the Stanford attack, and she gets up in Tony Stark's face, spits in his face like, I hate you, Tony Stark. You're the worst. You encourage reckless people to do billions of dollars with your dirty billions. Actual line, Dirty Billions, is what she says. And essentially, we begin to see a a split forming between the two groups, and it seems almost that superhero reform is inevitable. The actual idea of a Superhuman Registration Act, those ideas were planted before Civil War started. The Mutant Registration Act. And also, in some of the lead-in stuff, Brian Michael Bendis writes a new Avengers issue called Illuminati that has Tony saying the government wants to register superheroes, and... It's inevitable, as soon as there's some disaster, some group of kids blows up a building or something, this is going to become law. They're just waiting for the catalyst. And that's one of the things that I actually find super topical nowadays. A lot of people talk about how certain tragedies kickstart reform and things like that. Yeah, the catalyst, exactly. better or worse. And this book is extremely relevant now in the wake of tragedies. That's one of the reasons why it resonated so much more with me now than it did back then when I read it, because I feel like all the media stuff and the politicians talking in issue one, you could pull right off the news. I do like this book more than I first read it, but I probably like it less than you two, because I do find some of the political messages to be clunky, mainly how everyone turns on superheroes super quickly after this event. Just so people know, Johnny Storm is the Human Torch, uh, part, remember the Fantastic Four, along with Sue Storm, his sister, who's an invisible woman, and Reed Richards, who is Mr. Fantastic. And the thing. And the thing. Immediately after the explosion, Johnny Storm goes to a bar, and everyone basically calls him a murderer and beats the Child shit. killer. Child killer. Which, one problem with the event, I feel like events happen too fast. I mean, they do mention prior that this has been building. They mention the Hulk's attack on Las Vegas, which is what winds up, I believe, getting him exiled. Yep. To space. Yes, exiled to space. They mentioned Wolverine. I think he says he's going to kill the president or something, which is another Mark Millar story. Enemy Enemy of the the state. state. I know they mentioned Nick Fury going underground and that the super community is just in general disarray, and this is probably the least public support they've had in quite some time. This is one thing that I feel like uh, with events themselves, a lot of times what happens is if you're not really familiar with following events in comics, is there's the main miniseries and there's lots of tie-ins. And tie-ins will be other books like Fantastic Four or Spider-Man or whatever. And I feel like... This is one of the weaknesses that we see in a lot of events, is if you're just reading Civil War, you just see everyone seems to hate superheroes immediately. And it's kind of up to the tie-ins to show the quieter side. like The The change in culture. Yeah, the Fantastic Four tie-ins show a lot of people in New York that are on their side. The actual main miniseries kind of has to, not has to, but often focuses on the the main events, the main things that happen. And in this case, one of the main things that happen is Johnny Storm, as Sly mentioned, who is a beloved figure. The Fantastic Four are beloved figures in the Marvel Universe, gets like beaten up at a bar because of this hate for superheroes. And I think while that could have definitely been fleshed out more, 
a lot of the nuances are going to be designated to tie-ins when you only have seven issues. I also feel like a lot of it was done to put the anti-registration in a more positive light. One of the flaws I think of the story is that they really go out of their way to not make this as dual of an argument as it should be. Yeah. My big point was when Maria Hill turns all the shield guns on Captain America. Uh, Maria Hill, by the way, is Nick Fury's loyal helper in the Marvel films. Played by Colby Smulders. Yes, but ironically, she's not anything like she's in the comics, which I find weird. She's a lot more mean-spirited in this book. And this is before the act even goes into effect. Clearly, she's already drawing the line in the sand, essentially. Yeah, but S.H.I.E.L.D. has a lot of contacts in the government that say it's a formality. There's no way this law is not going to pass. Yeah. So basically, Captain America, he basically makes it clear, I'm not going to go along with this. S.H.I.E.L.D. turns him right, right away. Captain America breaks free, and that's the beginning of him and most other anti-registration people becoming lawless, on-the-run vigilantes. The next issue is the establishing of Captain America's Secret Avengers. We have Iron Man working to gain the public support. And a scene that really opened up issue two for me is during the vote of the Registration Act. Tony Stark is just, he's sweating this out. He's just like, please let us be right. Yeah. My biggest flaw of this book when I initially read it was I really thought it went out of its way to paint anti-registration as they're the heroes of this. Yeah. But that scene of Tony Stark being like, please let us be right really struck with me more because it felt like he really sees this it's either we change or that's the end of superheroes yeah when i first read civil war my only real familiarity with marvel at the time was i really loved and had read a lot of fantastic four and i felt that reed richards mr fantastic is a big pro registration character in this book and i felt that he was very painted in the unsympathetic light as well and rereading it there was a lot more of that as well with Reed. I don't know the exact quotes, but it's basically the same thing. Please let us be doing the right thing. I find it interesting you guys feel this way because Marvel has distanced the characterization of these characters from the portrayal here. Iron Man had his memory wiped after mm-hmm. these events. In Matt Fraction's Invincible Iron Man. And also Hank Pym, another pro-registration character, who was one of my favorite characters. He was revealed to be a alien shapeshifter in disguise. So... <laughs> I get where you're coming from, definitely, and that's definitely true with the case of those two characters, but as a Fantastic Four fan, my my biggest problem was Reed, and Reed's actions in Civil War have really kind of, they've doubled down on them and made them an integral part of his character, and that's one of the big reasons I appreciate it a lot more now, is because there was a lot more potential coming out of Civil War for Reed than I thought. There's the big reveal at the end of issue two, which is, Peter Parker decides to be like, hey world, I'm Spider-Man, look at me. Literally, he does yeah. a news conference, all the bells and whistles, like, reporters there. You know, I found it kind of suspicious that the Daily Bugle's main photographer wasn't present at Spider-Man's unveiling. You would think, like, Peter Parker would make it, right? And then, oh my god, it's Peter! (laughs) Yeah. Even without the backstory of Spider-Man at the time, because in the Spider-Man book, he'd kind of become Tony Stark's, like, right-hand man. Protégé. His protégé. He lives at Stark Tower after his house was destroyed. And he went with Tony to Congress to talk about the Registration Act. And even without that, I think this scene is probably one of the best scenes of the book. Peter is pro-registration, and this is a big deal. For those of you who know, Spider-Man actually has a custom suit Tony Stark builds him. The Spidey armor, or Iron Spidey as people call it. Now that we're touching on Peter, we should talk about his conflict in this story, which is he was living with Iron Man during this time, but he was always more of a street-level character who always tried to keep the identity secret to protect his family. His development in the story is in the background where he's struggling between should I go with the man who's helping me right now, Iron Man, or should I side with the guy who ideologically I would have followed in the past, Captain America. And the thing that makes Spider-Man so important to the story is he's always been the fringe superhero in-universe. He's always been the menace that nobody really likes and He's always been the street-level guy, and Marvel was pushing him to be more big picture at this point. And I feel like his debate in Civil War is akin to the debate Marvel was having. Should Spider-Man be a big, high-level Avengers character, or should he stay street-level fighting burglars? I thought that this is almost what Peter always kind of wanted. He would be able to be a superhero and have the safety net for his, his family, like, there's a reason why he's able to unmask, because now he's going to have the safety net. I'm going to have government protection, I'm going to be paid as a superhero. Yeah. 
Even when you compare Peter, he went from being like a freelance photographer, now he's on the Avengers salary, and his job is a scientist with Stark Labs. He is the most stable he's ever been in his career. Things are finally coming up for Peter. Yeah, and... For the next any, two issues. We're not going to get into <laughs> any of the stuff that happens after this for Peter Parker, but how sad that makes me that this is <laughs> things are coming up, Peter. I do want to ask, out of all the changes in the Civil War, I do think this is one I wish stuck. Uh, do you guys agree or disagree? I remember when Marvel initially announced this change. I think they announced it as great Spider-Man stories based off this change for years to come. That's not true. That is not the case. It is literally one arc. This is one change that gets reversed almost immediately. And I'm kind of torn because I think Spider-Man being public is really, really radically different for the character. That's why I like it, though, because I like the character being forced to deal with something he never dealt before and having the story progress in a way you can't really expect what's going to happen. I would have liked to see Peter be public for longer, but eventually return to some sort of, you know, comic book shenanigans. In comics, people say it's not about how long status quo lasts is what what type of stories they tell in the meantime. But the problem with this change is they didn't tell much of a story with it. Yeah. I feel like this is much more of a plot point for One More Day than it is for Civil War. I can guarantee that we'll be talking about One More Day relatively soon. We're going to save all that for the One More Day episode because that is probably going to be a double size. (laughs) I would have liked to see this go on for when Marvel said there are years worth of of storytelling potential with this move. And I agree with that. I thought there were years worth of storytelling potential that I think they kind of miss the boat on a little bit. Yeah. Issue three opens up with the pro-registration side taking PR trips to Wakanda and to the X-Men and trying to... At the very least, if not get them to join their side, then the very least to stay out of the pending conflict. I loved this issue. I think all these concepts are fascinating. Do you agree with the stances that people take? So let's go one by one. I think Sly should take point on the Doctor Strange one, because he is definitely our Doctor Strange expert. I don't think Doctor Strange would have taken the political stance on anything. His power is so great, it would really tilt the odds in such an incredible way. Like, he has to be really sure. You know, the Watcher also agrees with you on that. Yeah. And Doctor Strange is basically Marvel's big magic user guy. He has a goatee. Yeah. He'll be played by Benedict Cumberbatch and his beautiful British voice coming up soon. <laughs> Did any of us really know anything about Black Panther? <laughs> um, I knew dearly. Other than he was macking it with Storm at the time, I knew very little about Black Panther. I know he's black and he owns Wakanda. <laughs> and he, yeah. has, he has that weird Panther mask. I think you could, I think you could have a better description of <laughs> Black Panther, and that's really all he boils down to in life. <laughs> he's a uh, he's Marvel's first black superhero, and he's he has, he has his own country. He's the so. king of an African country. Yeah. All I really know about Black Panther going into Civil War is from that Illuminati one shot that I mentioned, mm-hmm. and he was very against the idea of the Illuminati and all that stuff. So when I saw Black Panther's characterization, I was just like, okay, it sounds good to me. And then it brings uh, it brings us to the third one, the X Men, which is my favorite scene of the three, where Tony goes to Emma Frost. And says, join our side. And she basically laughs in his face. Because, like we mentioned earlier, the Mutant Registration Act was the government trying to get mutants to register. Which, from the X-Men perspective, it's very Nazi Germany style. Usually the way it's talked about. Emma Frost, by the way, is Cyclops' girlfriend. And around this time, both she and Cyclops were leading the X-Men. And she's more of the morally gray debutante. I guess. She's got a lot of sass. Yeah, yeah very sassy. That's what she lacks in clothes, she makes up in sass. <laughs> yes. She's also a telepath because Cyclops is into that. And uh, <laughs> you can see, if you want to see her in live action, she's played by January Jones in X-Men First Class. Yep. Okay, so Emma Frost says that, you know, given the current status quo for the X-Men, they'd had basically gone through two genocides within the past couple of years. Yeah, they were, and, they were down to... 198 known mutants yeah, and that's, in the world. And that's after an Avengers story called House of M where a member of the Avengers was responsible for that. And that's also coming out after Genosha, which was a big genocide. Yeah, Marvel weirdly in this time span, they were like, we have too many mutants. And then they're like, we still have too many mutants. So they said no more mutants. <laughs> Emma Frost explicitly says, where were the Avengers after Genosha? Where were the Avengers after House of M? Yeah. Nobody was there for us. You guys are on your own. Which I love because I feel like in a lot of Marvel events, the X-Men kind of get shoehorned in. And this is one story where I love that they address it. So people aren't going, well, where are the X-Men? But they keep the scene in where you're like, this is where they are. And it makes total sense why they're not involved. 
they're the only one that I could have seen taking a side on the anti-registration if it was any other status quo. And I also feel like I find it really interesting that Tony goes to Emma and not Cyclops. Yeah. I feel like if he went to Cyclops, I would expect more of a hardline stance. Yeah. Emma's always been a better diplomat than yeah. Scott. You mentioned they had a thing. Yeah. Emma and Tony, which, I, to my knowledge, that was the first time I'd ever heard of that. I think that. it's the first time it's mentioned, but Give, whatever Given Emma's, the... Emma's status as yeah. the Hellfire Club and Tony Stark as a rich billionaire. I'm like, okay. And I don't think anyone is being like, Emma Frost as promiscuous? What a mischaracterization. Her literal costume is lingerie. Alright, so let's just jump right ahead to the Secret Avengers with their police radio pick up a distress signal at a chemical plant which is uh, bum 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 owned by Tony Stark and it's this big elaborate trap. I really like the Ad- Admiral Akbar cameo at this point it was it really tied in and it was foreshadowing Star Wars being bought by Disney also Marvel <laughs> This is actually where I felt the most sympathy for Tony at this juncture because you see he really doesn't want this fight. He's prepared for it but he really doesn't want it and this is where I thought they get Steve's characterization the best, where you really see Captain America's inability to compromise. But what's interesting about this scene, this fight is both the most and least sympathetic you're going to be for the pro-registration. It starts off the most sympathetic. Yeah. This is the real turning point of the series, yeah. is this fight. And Tony begs them to just come with them, to change their mind. Talk it out five minutes. He offers Captain America the handshake, and he's yeah. like, listen, just hear me out. Let's talk. Yeah. Is this when he mentions that the government has immunities for them and stuff like that? He really goes out of yeah. his way to say, please don't do this. And in what I thought it'd be a very un-Captain America thing, he Captain America essentially puts a bug on him that shuts down the armor. Yeah, that I he, thought was weird. I mean, they do take out the teleporters with, like, Trank stuff, but Cap really throws the first blow in this fight. Well, especially because it's during a handshake. Well, yeah. they were back to a corner. If Cap was going to either yield or fight it was at that moment this is where cap as a soldier really comes in and less of him is like the noble moral leader yes which is interesting because the beginning of the fight starts as cap playing dirty and it quickly goes the other way the other way it's a really quick reversal when i first read it i didn't realize how balanced this fight was as far as like the moral of it. Yeah. And on the reread, I was shocked at how compassionate I was towards the pro-registration people. Yeah. Because you want to see it work. I mean, I'm sure they're, they're the people who love hero versus hero fights. But like, if you're a fan of these characters, you don't want to see yeah. them come to blows. Well, we like hero versus heroes fights as like a fun fanboy thing, and then they team up at the end. And at this moment, you know that is not going to happen. So yeah. the fight starts, and it's pretty brutal right away. It's a pretty intense fight. But the main climax of the fight is when they bring in their deus ex machina, which in this case is Thor. And Thor was gone, and all the Asgardians were dead at this point. Yes. So this Thor is a robot clone of Thor. Well, we don't know that yet. The lead-in, the Fantastic Four lead-in issues, had Thor's hammer coming back to Earth for the first time since Thor disappeared. They did. So there were seeds planted for Thor to come back. Yeah. So when he shows up in Civil War... You think it's real Thor. Reading, reading the series that came out monthly at the time, I mean, my jaw dropped when, I, when you get to that last page and yeah. it's just Thor standing And I know hammer. it's hard to imagine now with all the movies and everything, but Thor had been gone for a while. And like, it's not like someone else had the hammer. There was just no Asgardians. They had been retired. People reading the story now will not understand that exact idea. The idea that Thor was gone for so long. Because now they're icons, but for a long time, these characters, Captain America... Thor and Iron Man, the big three of Avengers now, were kind of in character limbo. Iron Man was always struggling to be relevant. The Civil War was a way to kind of reinvent him in a way that's relevant as this pro-authority figure. Yeah. In the 90s, he was reinvented when he betrayed the Avengers and was replaced by a young, hip team yeah. Iron Man. And Captain America, this was a way to make him relevant again, too. They had just relaunched Captain America's book for the fifth time, I think, right before Civil War. But the thing is, even if you don't realize what a big deal Thor showing up is, because you're familiar with the movies and not so much the comics, it's still a pretty epic entrance that he has. It's dramatic, it's intense, and even a casual fan knows this is not going to go well for whoever Thor's against. Unfortunately, it's a cheap bullshit twist. Well, it's, yeah, it's not actually Thor, it's a clone robot. I'm going to disagree on that point for one reason. It'd be cheap and bullshit if... 
things don't go horribly wrong for the pro registration That's the thing. Side. Is normally it would be like, oh, it was a clone, but what happens is because it's a clone robot. But why it, a clone robot? I still don't get that. It's but something why that they control. It? Why make door? Your friend. Well, that's what they your, say. Your dead friend. Yes. Tony and Reed say it was supposed to be a realization moment for anti-registration that our friend is back from the dead and fighting against us. That's fucked up. Yeah, it is. Incredibly. So the programming for the Thor clone robot goes wrong, and he kills Goliath, who is not a major character, but he is... Ant-Man 2.0. I'm not going to lie, I'd never heard of Goliath. Basically, Hank Pym, who's the old guy in Ant-Man, mm-hmm. uh, not only does he give his Ant-Man identity to Scott Lang, he gives all the identities out to everyone, and yeah. Goliath is one of the identities he gave out. Now, Goliath might not be an A-list character, but he had been around since the 60s, and he gets he gets killed by the Thor robot, and even the pro-registration guys are... What the hell? Why did we do this? Like, no one was supposed to get hurt. These are not bad guys. Yeah. Yeah, they're breaking the law, but... They don't want to kill anyone. So this is when they lose that moral high ground. But they're too far in to back down. Uh, Imagine anyone, as a premise, thinks a robot clone Thor is dumb on principle. It is the most comic books LOL element of this whole story, but in the grand scheme of things, especially in big event stories, it is on the lower side for me of dumb ideas. That's because you read a lot of comics, though. Yeah, that's true. A new reader might think that's a little ridiculous, for sure. And I think it is the most ridiculous element, but I don't think it detracts that much because they show the emotional ramifications of their dead friend and that that's the thing that goes horribly wrong. It had to be a robot because the blame has to fall on Reed and Tony and Hank Pym. That they programmed this thing and they didn't program it well enough. They rushed it out. And I think that's why it has to be a robot. The clone stuff is weird, (laughs) for sure. But I can't think of another thing that would have had the same emotional weight as Thor showing up and killing somebody. The biggest point about it is it showed the hubris of the pro-registration side. Exactly. We are so in the right that... We can do evil things. Yeah. Yeah. So they get out of the Thor fight, the Secret Avengers do, thanks to Sue Storm, uh, Sue Richards, who turns on her husband and the Fantastic Four and helps the... Well, she was initially, she's just, it's really Sue Storm being like, this is enough, this has gone horribly wrong, everyone get out. So Sue at this point had been kind of out of the fight and been more like Reed's counterpoint, where Reed's like, we're doing these things, and she keeps being like, why don't you think about it? And this is the point where she really shows that she does not support it and helps the anti-registration guys go away. So they escape, the Avengers feel bad, Spider-Man's like, I'm kind of sick of all this. And you're kind of evil, Tony, for doing that, so I'm leaving. And Tony's like, no, you're not, Peter, because I'm going to fight you and put you in a negative zone, which this is a prison. There no, that, I got to disagree. I did not get that from that scene. I didn't get that from that. That scene yeah. is Peter like, I'm leaving, and Tony's like, let's talk about this, Peter. Yeah. I almost describe Peter as having much more of a panic attack about yeah. what's going on. This is this is another scene where I weirdly have, I have sympathy for Tony, because like, Tony's right, when he's like, think about this, Peter. Think about, like, Mary Jane. Think about Aunt May. How do you feel knowing that all these people have their zip code now? Yeah, and what we were saying before, Tony's offering Peter a lot of protection. Yeah, and not just Peter, Peter's family. Yeah, but I do want to note that Tony using negative zone as a prison for people not complying with the registration act is a thing. Yes, and the negative zone for people that don't know is an alternate dimension that's basically just filled with giant monsters. If you saw the summer blockbuster this year called Fantastic Four and wanted to shoot yourself you would uh, know what Negative Zone is. (laughs) Yeah, Negative Zone is basically a dimension where everyone has to watch that movie all the time. Yeah. Yeah. But to be fair, if Peter kept fighting Tony, Tony would throw him in Negative Zone, so that part is accurate. Yeah, that is true, but he doesn't threaten him with that. And my favorite part of this whole scene is Peter jumps out a window, right, to get away. He tries to jump out. He tries to. Reinforced window, bitch. and, And Tony has, like, a bunch of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents that pull their guns on him, and he says, stop, put your guns away, that's not what we're doing. Like, we are having a discussion. And they fire at him. Yeah. And that's how he breaks the window, and he escapes. Did Tony say, don't shoot at Peter because he didn't want to break the window, or because he didn't want to shoot Peter? What does he say at the very end after Peter gets away? Damn it. Yeah. Was he saying, damn it, because they shut the window, and he was saying, don't shoot the fucking window? Definitely not. (laughs) I I got the impression I read, but... You got the impression that he was upset about the window? No, that the window that cost let, so much money. Yeah, no, but the window let Peter escape because if he didn't shoot the window, Peter was trapped in oh, there. Oh, see, I took it as his son just ran away from home and said, "Like fuck you, dad." Yeah, I think I took it as 
he just lost yeah. a really big supporter and the, the face of, his face movement. of yes. the movement. But, yeah. the, but I do think there is a joke there because the shield agents do free Peter in that fight. Yeah, you could. Oh take... no, that's the joke. I mean, the joke is Peter goes in the window and it doesn't break. <laughs> yeah, that that is immediately as Peter yeah. makes this decision. But the I most didn't. Peter Parker thing. I didn't to take him. it as damn it, Peter got away. I took it as damn it, Peter left. I think it's a matter of perspective. I do agree with you overall, but I do think when people read this and it was more controversial at the time, I do think a lot of people viewed Tony as more cold and calculating. That's true. I mean, we that. felt that way the first time we read yeah. it. Yeah. I, I don't think I felt it as much, but I definitely felt like Tony Stark was right for the wrong reasons yeah. at times. We got to cover something else. The Avengers feeling that they are losing the high grounds reveal the Thunderbolts. The same issue Goliath dies is where they reveal that, hey, we're shorthanded. We're going to use some supervillains. Just so people know, Thunderbolts are a team of supervillains. Long story short, they were villains undercover disguised as heroes, and enough of them found the respect that they were looking for that they never got as villains and be- become permanent heroes. Yeah. It's Bullseye, it's Venom, it's uh, Green Goblin, and uh, Jack Lantern has the best day of his life being included with all of those people. I think they pick a great lineup for this. There's enough villains on there that the casual fan would recognize. Mm-hmm. They, they picked the Marvel movie villains. Yeah. And there's still enough more obscure villains to have intrigue on it. Like, yeah. who's this jack-o'-lantern guy? So I hope like, he lives. <laughs> yeah. And I think that Bullseye and Venom make it brutal enough that you're like, these are bad people. That page is scary. They really scrape the, like, the scummiest of scummy people. Like, this isn't like Sandman. This isn't like Juggernaut. These weren't villains that had done heroic things in the past. Yeah. These were straight up killers and thugs. These are people that they use because they're like, we don't have a choice, we need to win. It's one of the things I wish they didn't do. Yeah, I think this is a cheap way of showing their desperation, but they just killed a hero, and this is their follow-up. I would have liked to see this being more of a plan F or G than a plan B. The right way to do this is you, you pick guys like Sandman, guys who have more checkered... Past guys who aren't straight-up murderers. And then maybe have that not work out so well, and then pick these guys at the end of the next issue or something. This is where I felt that the book really starts to slant one way. Yes. And what really should have been a great two-sided argument really becomes anti-registration are the heroes of this yes. book. So the Thunderbolts then hunt down the escape Peter Parker and brutally beat the shit out of it. He gets by its Jack-O-Lantern yeah. and the Jester. I love the Jester. I love Jack-O-Lantern, honestly. They're great, until they die miserably. At the and, hands uh, of... One of Joe Sands' all-time favorites, the Punisher. For those of you that don't know, the Punisher was in a fantastic series by Garth Ennis under the Max imprint. And he really wasn't a part of the Marvel Universe. The like, Max he was, imprint he... is like a mature line that's kind of outside of continuity. So Civil War was really a way for Marvel to kind of reintroduce that character to mainstream Marvel. And I think he's used really well in this oh, series. I love I think, him in this book. I think his introduction is great where he bursts into the anti-registration headquarters and he's got a dying Spider-Man in his arms and yeah. he's like, this man needs medical attention. It's funny because the reason why we were complaining about the Thunderbolts being the turning point in the moral high ground that the pro-registration guys have and the reason Punisher joins the anti-registration is because the anti-registration forces aren't hiring criminals. Yeah, he says, I would have stayed out of it if they weren't hiring goddamn supervillains or something like that. That's why I'm not as harsh on the Thunderbolts, because it is for a reason. Yeah, they should have shown a little more desperation, but it's not just like, look how edgy this is. There's a point for it. Yes, but you have to have plot elements come in naturally. Oh yeah, it could be better, but it's not just... Now, let's up the stakes. It's for a reason. It needed one more bad thing to happen for them to be that desperate. I do wonder why this event's only seven issues when a lot of older Marvel events used to be 12 issues long. And I feel this plot is big enough to be 12 issues long. One thing to keep in mind, though, we talked about modern Marvel events. Disassembled is how long? Three issues or something, right? It's longer. It's like five. Well, one of my big problems with modern events is the length. I do feel a lot of them could use more development. I do think that even though Civil War is only seven issues, he makes use out of every page. A lot of events, I feel like, start really strong and then kind of peter out in the middle. And then the end is kind of just like wrapped up. I feel like these seven issues, I think the pacing is really great. How did you feel when Cap accepts Punisher? onto his forces, because while he certainly doesn't have the stigma of a Norman Osborn or a Venom or a Lady Deathstrike or a Bullseye, he is a killer. The way the villains joining 
the pro registration, I think, is, is their desperation. This is now Steve's desperation. Yes. Yeah. I really like how it, it showcases that both of them are desperate and they're compromising their, like, superhero morals. But I think at this point, Steve, Captain America, recognizes he's fighting a war, and war is not won by ideals, it's won by soldiers. And Frank Castle is nothing if not a soldier. I loved it. As it was... Sorry, we'll cut that. No, we won't. It is Steve very much compromising his values yeah. for probably the first time in the yeah. series. And I think it's Punisher on a team of heroes yeah. done the absolute best way I think it could yeah. ever be done. One thing that I really like about this that I feel like isn't addressed enough in Captain America comics is he was a soldier who fought in a war. Yeah. He killed Nazis yeah. like with guns and stuff. Like People pretend like he didn't, but he was a soldier. Captain America is the character that I feel like shouldn't have a no-killing code. But yeah. he did for a long time. He did for a long time, but I find that weird. I found that the non-killing code really applied to not war. You say this is a war. I don't think it's a war, and that's why I think it's so compromising of Steve yeah. for him to okay. accept the punishment. I mean, I view it as a war because they're planning battles almost. But they're not trying to kill. But here's the thing. Uh, they're not planning to kill, but if, say, Tony's hiring villains... And the villains were willing to kill Spider-Man. So. Yeah, Spider-Man almost died. And the anti-registration is the only team that has casualties at this point. Yeah. It's just one. Yeah. But he's really big. He should count twice. <laughs> and I mean, he's literally big. He's like 40 feet tall. Captain America doesn't know Tony's broken up over what happened. For all he knows, like, yeah. hey, master plan. Robot door kills everyone. Yeah. And Captain America's like, holy shit. We have to fight yeah. Thor. And the evidence that he has, the Punisher's introduced, carrying Peter Parker's mangled body. Yeah by supervillains that the pro-registration guys hired. From Cap's perspective, somebody wavered and he sent assassins after him. So yeah, we all think the Punisher's great in this series. <laughs> Unfortunately, his uh, presence is very short-lived because as soon as a bunch of former villains offer to join up, Punisher shoots them all and Captain America beats the shit out of him. The end of Punisher in Civil War. Steve beats the ever-loving crap out of him. That's, and I the like Punisher that. does not fight back. Yeah. And Steve asks him, like, why aren't you fighting back? Like, he's like, fight me. And he's like, not you. Yeah. It's Steve kind of coming to terms that he made a mistake, but it's also Frank being like, I can never be the man that you are. Yeah. You're Captain America. The Punisher is surprisingly really poignant in this series. He's the one character who doesn't compromise his values in this series. Yeah. And they make a lot of parallels and comparisons between Punisher and Cap. I think somebody says this. Same person, different war. Exactly. Yeah. Punisher is to Vietnam as what Steve is to World War II. Which is one of my favorite lines of the whole series. Because that's one thing that I feel like really gets to the core of both characters yeah. so easily and so concisely and puts everything in such context. No, I agree. His arc is handled great. Go Punisher. Yeah. He should be in more things. You go check out Punisher in Marvel's Netflix series, uh, Daredevil, season two. <laughs> Towards the end of issue five, we get the reveal of the number 42 prison, which is a prison in the negative zone. Initially designed to house super criminals, the pro registration side then begins to use it to house heroes that are breaking the registration act. Is this when they bring in the first batch of heroes? It's revealed in the scene where they're walking in Daredevil. Because that is... I know I keep saying this, but it's one of my favorite lines of the whole series. Daredevil is, is he's a street-level character, just like Peter Parker, but one thing that makes Daredevil being anti-registration such a big deal is Daredevil's an attorney, so he's supposed to be super law, you know, super, like, lawful. Lawful good. Yeah. The fact that he's anti-registration, I think, is really powerful, and he's not really addressed nearly enough in the main series, but he does have this moment where he comes in and he has nothing with him except a silver dollar that he has under his tongue, and the guard says, Daredevil hasn't said a word, he just gave me this coin and says this goes to you. And he gives it to Tony, and he goes, what's this for? And he goes, now you have, I don't remember how many. 31 pieces. Now you have 31 pieces of silver. Judas. Daredevil's a big Catholic character. If anyone's seen the show, that's a pretty big part of the show. And I thought that that was such a, like, sick burn. Yeah. <laughs> a question. Do you think Mark Millar knew that it was actually Iron Fist as Daredevil in that scene or, or not? See, when I see retcons like that, like, because it's obviously revealed later that Iron Fist was wasn't that Daredevil. He, wasn't that known at the time? I think it was known. It was known that it wasn't Matt Murdock. Usually in big events, I'm kind of really fine with ignoring the current status quo, if it's going to really muddy it, like, I think it's more powerful, especially reading it now, just, that's Matt Murdock, whatever, I'll figure yeah. it out later. 
if you're a new fan and you'll never know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one thing uh, Ryan likes to believe in is the idea of a head cannon, where whatever you think is canon is canon. And yeah, his, whatever. And this head cannon is that is Matt Murdock. Yeah, who's okay. to tell me otherwise? Yeah. Joe. Right. <laughs> Joe Siano. Me and only me. Yeah. Reigns on Ryan's parade. Going forward with other pro-restriction ideas, we get the introduction of the 50-state initiative. Every state is going to have its own superhero team, which I thought was a fantastic concept. Um, I like this concept a lot, but I feel like it goes nowhere in this book. It doesn't, but I love the introduction of it, where you yeah. see the champions out in L.A. It's also yeah. a logical pr- progression, because uh, as everyone knows, every goddamn hero is in New York City, and there's like no one in any other part of the country. I, I think it's one of those concepts that Millar sets up for someone to follow up on after Civil War. And every event, I think, needs those to really matter. I do complain about some stuff being not fleshed out, but I do think for the sake of elaborating on Tony's vision for the world, I think this scene is key for that. Yes, absolutely. And issue seven is the final fight between pro-registration versus anti-registration. They do a jailbreak and the number 42 prison. They try and lock down the prison, which will leave them all sealed in the negative zone. And Cloak teleports everyone to Marvel Manhattan. Where, where else would they go? Those who've seen Avengers will feel right at home in this finale. No, the, those who've seen Man of Steel will feel right at home at this finale. There are some two-sprayed spreads that I'm like, this is cheesy and grabbing me for the big epic popcorn scene, but goddamn if I don't love every battle, because Steve McNiven's art you is... Mean Steve McNivish? <laughs> yeah. I can't read. He does such a good job at showing the weight and the exhaustion and desperation in every character, and it is a big, dramatic fight, and it looks awesome. One thing we have to bring up as a setup is that Sue Storm, Sue Richards, I keep uh, taking away her wedding ring. Uh, she's not defined by her husband. She's a strong, independent character on her own. <laughs> <laughs> she goes to Namor and asks for his help. And Namor's forces come out and help. Help Cap? Yep. There is a lot of, like, and then these guys are here, and then these guys are here. There's also, I don't know if you guys noticed this, the original Captain Marvel randomly shows up. Uh, well, he was dead. I took him he as was, he was another clone. Robot. No, he's not a clone. Is that a scroll, Captain Marvel? It's revealed to be a scroll. He's the warden of the number 42 prison, and he randomly appears. Tony and Reed don't know what to do with him, so in the meantime, they make him the warden of the 42 prison. We don't know what to do with him. We'll give him the most important job in the world. (laughs) It was a pretty much empty prison at that point. Captain Marvel, by the way, he was uh, notable because he was the first hero to ever defeat Thanos, who is the big bad of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And he was killed by Nitro, who did kickstart this whole event. Yeah, but I do think that page with Thor flying in, with Captain Marvel standing right there next to him, I do find that off-putting. Yeah. I think when you see stuff in the background of Splash pages, I'm always like, oh, I bet there's tie-ins that talk about who that guy is. Yeah. And that's, I'm fine with that. So it's just funny that this is the one thing that's a kind of secondary that should be a bigger deal. If yeah. Captain America saw Captain Marvel flying towards him, he'd be like, holy yeah. shit, it's Captain Marvel yeah. flying There were a me. lot of things in this final issue that were kind of... I'm going to say cut for time, but there, I know there's supposed to be a scene because the Sentry is a huge part of Marvel at this juncture. He's essentially, he's a Marvel Superman who has like an evil like um, persona in the back of his head and it's this constant conflict. I didn't even notice he was in this book. Yes, he he's in the background. I, I, this he, is news to me. He, yeah. he is, he's in, the, he's in some of the splash pages, but he doesn't say a word. Uh, but what was noticeable was that he's such a powerhouse, he's such a guy that is pro-registration and could easily tilt the fight either way, yeah. that the scene where he's dealt with, I think, it winds up on the cutting room floor. It's essentially Cap um, psychs him out, and then the sentry flies away. Honestly, that's The return of thing... Captain Marvel was supposed to be in issue 7. I kind of really things... like that both of those things are cut, because... Oh no, they're not essential at yeah, all. Not even but because they're, they're, they're essential, interesting, though. the vast majority of the characters in this book are characters that most casual fans are going to know yeah. and have some sort of emotional attachment to. If they have all of a sudden issue 7, their scenes with the original Captain Marvel, who I'm a big fan of, or the Sentry, I feel like I would be lost. It's made the book last longer, honestly, by not having those scenes. Honestly, in, in that context, though, it's kind of neat that that's how they put him in, because we were so easily like, oh, it's a clone robot of another dead Marvel character. Okay, cool. And I feel like that's kind of like a, you can have your cake and eat it too, where it's easily hand-waved to the first reader, but also, if if you you want want more, more, it's deeper. Because I wasn't like, why is he here? I was like, oh, he's just part of this clone army. That's fine, whatever. So let's wrap up this finale. Let's wrap up this farce. 
All right, we have a few nice moments. We have Reed going in front of a shot by the Taskmaster. That's aimed at Sue. Who can make force fields, for the record? But that was great. I love that moment. Longtime Thor buddy Hercules puts Clone Thor down for the count. This whole issue is just like, look at these awesome splash pages. But even though it's very action-y, I feel like there is still more character in there than usual in these kind of big event fights. They spend so much time on these big fights that I do feel the ending is very abrupt. Because Captain America gets tackled by paramedics, firefighters, and police officers. And this makes him realize all the people that were in the middle of their melee. Yeah. And this fight just stops. I actually really like that. Because they all jump on Captain America, not because they're pro-registration, but because they said, like, look what's going on. And it zooms out to a decimated Manhattan street. A fight between these hundreds of superheroes is destroying the city. We brought up Man of Steel as a joke before, but I feel like this is why I like this fight better. Because as soon as they realize the problem, Cap goes, we can't fight this anymore. They are the problem. And having him surrender is the only way that this fight could have ended. Their whole argument is, we don't need the government to tell us when to put our weapons down. And then he looks up and he goes, wait, we do. Not even the government, the people. And the people wanted it. Yeah. The registration bill had a lot of support from the public. Steve wins the battle, but Tony wins the argument. So obviously there's a big creative summit at Marvel, and they're trying to like really hammer the story out. No joke, Joss Whedon came in 10 minutes gave this ending, and then got on his horse and left. That's awesome. Joss Whedon is director of Avengers, by the way. I do, th- I do think the epilogue had enough potential interest behind it to fill an issue on its own. You could argue that that's what the next stories are for, but I do feel more epilogue would have been better. We've been praising Mark Miller a lot, and which is ironic because usually we're not the biggest fans. On the next episode, we're going to shit on him a lot. You might. Yeah, we probably will. Joe won't. But one of the things that Mark Millar doesn't do well is subtlety. The politics in this book are very forefront. There's not a lot left unsaid. And that's why I actually like that the epilogue is designated to more quieter, character-centric books like Captain America's book or Iron Man's book. I like that he ends his big story and then the epilogue is the heroes go home and deal with that on their own. I prefer the quieter stuff to be left to someone with a more nuanced pen. I think to do an epilogue for all those characters in this book would have been impossible. It would have taken a whole nother issue. How do you feel about the closing scene of Susan Everywoman and Tony Stark looking out at a very promising sunset? I actually don't like that scene at all. He has Susan Everywoman show up and say like, let's recap these things going forward. Look at all the new cool stuff we're doing. And then Tony smiling into the sunset. It's, As director it's of S.H.I.E.L.D. very smug. I think the book would be a lot better without that. And that's another reason why I'm pretty anti-epilogue in this case. Because, like, the small epilogue we get left a pretty bad taste in my mouth. You come into this with not a lot of great feelings for Tony. Yeah. And for Tony to be the one who gets, like, the nice sunset ending. Yeah. Rubs you the wrong way. Absolutely. In a way that I don't think adds anything to the story. No, I, it, it's, I think it's a much stronger ending if, if Tony's like, you know, we did a lot of wrongs here. Yeah. We have to make sure that we do things right from here on out. Absolutely. And not have the sunset with Susan Everywoman, yeah. who was a source of guilt for it, Tony. Yeah, and she finally forgives him and says, you did the right thing. That's what I mean about subtlety. Yeah. It's pretty on the nose of, see, Tony's the good guy he won. It undermines the scenes where him and Reed show doubt over their actions. Exactly. And that's probably why I felt that way when I first read it, that Tony was unsympathetic, because that's how I left it off, that I forgot about the back stuff, because yeah. that was the ending. So final thoughts. Do you think it's a good story? Yeah, I, I think it's a good story. What keeps it from being great is that it does become a very one-sided argument. Yeah. It should have been a more even playing field. But I come away from this like not liking it as much as the first time I read it, I think, but definitely liking it more than the second time I read it. I come away with a lot more peace. Yes, there are not great character moments, but I think almost everyone gets some justice to them. As someone who generally dislikes event comics for a lot of the faults this book has, they are less game-breaking in this book than most I've read. As reading it as a standalone story, it's more enjoyable than I remember. If you're a new fan and you're interested in Captain America, Iron Man, and Spider-Man, this is one of the biggest stories of those characters, and 
it does justice to those characters well enough to be worth recommending. One thing I would like to say before I make my recommendation that I didn't mention. We didn't mention Mari Hollowell's coloring. The coloring in this book is on par with the penciling. In my oh, opinion. beautiful. For my final judgment, I say it's, it's very good. I think it's great for new readers. But the thing that makes me qualify it is I would say it's a great book if you immerse yourself in the universe afterwards. Overall, as a standalone book, I still think it's a very good book. But I think it works better as a big crossover Marvel story than it does as just the summer blockbuster. All right. Uh, recommendations, just to wrap things up. Um, I'm going to recommend Avengers The Initiative by Dan Slott. A really neat look at the fallout of Civil War, where now you have people training. You have great young characters who I wish got picked up by other books. You really get to see the politics and the breakdown of the new initiative. And just throw it out, the Warren Ellis... Mike, Mike DiDio? Diodato, I Diodato, think. thank you. As fans of a purely visual medium, we obviously don't know how to pronounce anybody's name. <laughs> but his Thunderbolts run, if you want to see more of the villains in this story, and you want to see some of the really fascinating politics that spin out from Civil War, I'd recommend that book in a heartbeat. Uh, my recommendation is my two favorite hero versus hero stories, writing do, do it the best out of any book. I know you're a huge AVX fan. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of my favorite... Here versus here stories is X Men versus Avengers. I thought you hated that. Fuck you. <laughs> okay. No, wait. Is that the Roger Stern book that Tom DeFalco takes over? Yes. Okay. There's, there's is that, that thing that you hated. <laughs> I'm trying to trying so hard to explain this without being confusing. <laughs> well, don't get Avengers versus X Men. Get X Men versus Avengers, which is actually good. X Men versus Avengers is about Magneto joins the X Men prior to the story, and the Avengers want to punish him for the crimes he committed, while the X Men want to protect one of their own. And there's a big question of whether Magneto has really reformed or not. My second choice is X-Men vs. Fantastic Four, which was made around the same time. It's less of an ambiguous story because there's a big bad at the end. But I do find the way the story generates tension between the two teams is legitimate. It's one of the most severe and intense rivalries I felt between a team. When Wolverine beats up Mr. Fantastic, you really feel like he wants to kill him. Yeah. I haven't read X-Men vs. Avengers, but I love X-Men vs. Fantastic Four, and they are actually collected together in a hardcover. I have two recommendations. If you like Captain America in the story, Ed Brubaker's run starts right before this and goes way long after it, and he deals with the fallout from it, what happens after he surrenders, and his run is really great from beginning to almost the end. I really didn't like his finale. Brubaker's Captain America defined the character for the modern age, and I think it'll go down as the definitive take on the character. And the other one that I want to recommend is another book written by Mark Millar, actually two, Ultimates 1 and 2. If you're a fan of his politics in Civil War, they're done, I think, much better and much more severe in Ultimates 1 and 2, which is an alternate universe take on the Avengers, and it's more... What would superheroes be like if the government kind of ran their mission? All right. Okay, so if you guys liked it or didn't like it or whatever, shoot us an email, divisiveissues at gmail.com. Same thing if you have any suggestions for future episodes, like Get Good. <laughs> and you can also check us out Fire on Facebook. Fire Joe, because he's awful. <laughs> Divisive Issues is the name of our Facebook page. The email is divisiveissues at gmail.com. Right. I think so. I think so, too. All I right, made it. Go. It should be. It should be. <laughs> I've been Sly. I've been Ryan. And this has been Joe Ciano. All right, everyone. Good night and stay in continuity. Stay in continuity. Stay in continuity. I don't need